Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you all. You can uh, take your Bibles, and we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, continuing our study in that great book. And uh, you should have some outlines, handouts around on the tables if you'd like to use those. That could be helpful to you. Wanted to, before we even get started, wanted to mention one thing. Uh, I showed this to my class last time, but uh, going through this topic on the spiritual gifts uh, can bring up a lot of questions about uh, what those look like and, and why we believe the miraculous gifts have ceased being normative in the church and, and those, those things. So as I studied for these last several lessons, the two books that really rose to the top for me were obviously Pastor Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Cessationism, and then uh, Dr. Larry Pettigrew's book, The New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you're curious about these topics, I would say uh, those are great places to start for you, all right? Well, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we will start into the second half of 1 Corinthians 14. God, we're thankful for the time uh, to study your word together. We're thankful for your word and its clarity and its benefit to us as we understand it. And we're thankful for the spirit who gives us illumination, who allows us to understand your truth. We pray that you would bless us this morning as we study, that it would be honoring to you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, anyone who has tried to build a house or have a house built will tell you that the order of operations matters, okay? If you are building a house and your drywall guys show up to build the walls before the electrical and plumbing guys have installed them in the walls, you're going to have a big problem, right? Uh, there's a reason why the roofers don't show up until after the framers are done. And a good general contractor, that's his job, is to manage the project as a whole and to make sure that the right people show up at the right time so that not only do the workers do their job well, but they do it in the right order such that the house is built up. Well, way more importantly than building a house is God's building of his church. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, the second half, we're going to be talking about how the order of operations, the, the things that happen in the context of the corporate worship service, there are rules of order, things that have to happen in certain ways, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to encourage that. We saw in 1 Corinthians 14, really the, the theme of this whole chapter is that using spiritual speaking gifts in love means using them for edifying the church, right? We're finishing up this section of chapters 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12, we talked about how God has designed the church for all of us to be unified. We're all one in the spirit, and yet we are all different, and God made it that way, and he delights in it being diverse in the context of the church. And so, when we want to use our different spiritual giftedness, what do we do use them for? Well, chapter 13 gave us that essential element, right? What's the core priority in using your gifts in the context of the church? It's that you're trying to love one another, that you are serving one another in the context of the church. And then we came to chapter 14. Okay, what does it look like to use your gifts, especially in chapter 14, we're focusing on the speaking gifts in the context of corporate worship. What does it look like to use your speaking gifts in such a way that the church is actually built up? So uh, this is how I broke down chapter 14. Brian probably did it way better, so just listen to him. 
Um, but we started, and we started talking in chapters, uh, verses 1 to 5, about the edifying purpose of speaking gifts. Why does Paul go over and over saying that prophecy is a greater gift, a better gift than speaking in tongues? Because it more consistently and more easily builds up the church without the use of the interpreter, right? So we saw that in the first five verses, and then continuing on, we see in the rest of the chapter the edifying practice of speaking gifts. What does it look like to actually do this? Well, the first major section we talked about was how if you want to use your speaking gift in a way that actually builds up the church, you have to do it in an understandable way, which obviously affects the people who are using their gift of speaking in other languages. They needed an interpreter there, not only to be able to help translate the language into something that everyone else could understand except for the people that understood that first language, but also so that they could affirm that, that the, the translation was correct between those two, right? There was a, a witness aspect to that as well. Then at the end of uh, that section, verses 20 to 25, we saw another key element of an edifying message, and an edifying message is appropriate to the context. You remember how Paul told them, you need to think well. You need to think maturely about your spiritual gifts. You need to understand what they are for and how to use them well. And then he quoted from Isaiah 28, and you remember he said, just so you know, speaking in tongues is not primarily a gift to be used for believers. It's primarily a gift to be used for unbelievers, and in one way, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, like he mentioned here, it's a sign of judgment for the unbelieving Jews. And he quoted from Isaiah 28, when, when you hear all these different languages, you need to understand that God is judging you. And so we saw that even in Acts chapter 2, where the people who didn't understand, the unbelieving Jews, they thought they were crazy, right? But we also saw the good side of this, that it's a sign for unbelievers. The unbelieving Gentiles who needed the gospel, they could now hear it in their own language as the apostles were given that ability, right? So we saw an edifying message needs to be understandable to the hearer, it needs to be appropriate to the context, and then we come today to our final section here, and this is going to be the, our message for this morning, is an edifying message is orderly in its presentation. The reality is that for a message to actually build up the church, we're going to say it this way, the orderliness of corporate worship is essential to the edification of the church. The way the corporate worship service happens, the way that it is ordered and structured, matters and is essential to the edification of the church. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14 and let's read our section for today and then we'll come back and we'll walk through it. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. <clears throat> what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church." Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only 
If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So, and this last half of 1 Corinthians 14, we're talking about the orderliness of corporate worship being essential to the edification of the church. In this section, Paul's going to give us four instructions concerning the rules of order in corporate worship. And first, we see in verse 26, the heart behind the rules of order. The heart behind the rules of order. Verse 26, what then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue. What then? What, what is it? What do we do now? That's the idea. We've talked in 12 about how we're diverse and we've talked in chapter 13 how we must love one another. We've talked in chapter 14 about how we can use our speaking gifts for the edification of the church. We have to. Okay, so what does that look like? What, what do we do with this? In one sense, this whole section is the application of the last three chapters. What are we going to do with what we know? And so Paul presents this scenario. When you, when you assemble, literally, when you come together, and we've seen that a lot in the last couple chapters of 1 Corinthians, even back in chapter 11 when it kept talking about how you, you meet together, you come together to celebrate the Lord's table. So it's clear for, in this section that we are talking about the corporate gathering, the corporate worship service each week of the church. And so we see here, when you come, when you come together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation. You're all coming with your different ideas of how the church service should happen and what should go on. Are these bad things? No, of course not. These are all good things, right? Each one has a psalm, and Ephesians 5 tells us we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord. Someone else has a teaching or an instruction. Well, we've seen that already. We saw that back in uh, the beginning of chapter 14, verse 6, when Paul says he comes and it's benefit to you, it's profit to you when I come by way of teaching you. That's a good thing. Someone else has a revelation. This is the idea of, of a new word from the Lord coming to those who were prophets and them speaking new truth uh, before the canon of Scripture was completed to the churches. We see that uh, use of the word in Galatians 1 when Paul says that he received this truth through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 3.3 3 says, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery. God revealed something to him. Someone else has a revelation. And, and it says someone else has a tongue and has an interpretation. 1 Corinthians 12, remember we saw that list of gifts that the Spirit gives. And one of them was someone who could speak in other languages that they hadn't studied. And then someone else who has the gift of interpretation. They could hear and understand languages they hadn't studied. So he says, you, you all come... And you all come with these different ideas of, of how we should do corporate worship. Are any of those things bad? No. The problem isn't that you're coming. The problem isn't that you're coming with bad ideas. The problem is, what? Too much of a good thing, right? We can't handle all of this goodness. So how are we going to order it? How are we going to give priority to these things? And here's the heart. Here's the rule behind all the rest of the rules. You ready? Let all things be done for edification. How do we decide what happens in a church service? All things done for edification. We do whatever is best for the body of Christ to look more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what we do. 
We saw this back in chapter 12. Remember, he said, your spiritual giftedness. Each one of you is given a spiritual giftedness. Why? That is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for what? For the common good. Your spiritual giftedness is not for you. It's for who? It's for everybody else, right? You are given a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit so that you could use it for building up the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 God gave certain men in these offices as pastor teachers, why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to what? To the building up of the body of Christ. Why are we here gathering each week so that we can be built up to be more like Christ? Why are we ordering our services in a certain way so that we can be built up into the body of Christ? I love what he said uh, earlier in 14, verse 12. So also you, remember he was talking about the, the understanding of the languages, verse 12, so also you, since you are, literally, since you are spiritual gift zealots, you are so excited about this, seek to abound for the edification of the church. If you're going to be so passionate about your spiritual gifts, which you should be, you should be equally passionate about building up the church, edification of the church. That's the goal. So just a couple of quick applications from that verse there, verse 26. Notice how important it is that they gather. Notice how important it is that they gather with the intention of participating together. Uh, You know, I think the uh, American church could probably get a dose of Corinthians here. Uh, You should be excited to come. You should be excited to come and to participate in the worship services here at your local church. Everyone comes, and of course they come with all their own ideas, and we need to talk about how we can order those in a way that's helpful But they all came, and they all came with their own ideas, right? That's a wonderful thing that they wanted to come and participate in worship. But again, notice the key, the heart of it, all things done for edification. So the question for you and me is when we show up to church on Sundays, are you coming with the intention of getting something or of giving something? Are you coming with the intention of being served, of being taken care of, of being prayed for, of being encouraged, Or are you coming with the intention that I want to do whatever it takes, sacrifice whatever I have to, to make sure that the rest of this church is built up to be more and more like Jesus? That's the idea. All things done for edification. So, the heart behind the rules of order, all things done for edification. Then, Paul gets into the explanation of the rules of order. And this is, he's going to break down into three sections. The first section, we're going to talk about the roles of tongue speakers. The roles of those who could speak in tongues. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Notice first the the use of the speaking gift, right? The the one who can speak in tongues, how is he supposed to use his speaking gift? Well, notice actually first that it's not necessary and therefore it's limited. You notice in verse 27, it starts with what? If. And in verse 28, it says that if there's not an interpreter, he can't use his speaking gift in the context of the church. Which means, by definition, that this particular speaking gift is not necessary for the normal corporate worship services. Is it bad? No, we talked about that last time. We'll talk about it again today. That speaking in tongues is a legitimate spiritual gift and should be used correctly and used well at the time. I believe that's uh, not normative for the church today. We can talk about that more after if you want. But in this context, he says, even in this context, it's not necessary for corporate worship to go well. If anyone wants to speak in a tongue... 
There are rules. <laughs> Notice its use is limited. By two, or literally, at the greatest, the greatest number this should ever be would be three. So, whether you are speaking in tongues or not, if you are going to do this, it has to be limited so that it is helpful, okay? Now look at the timing. He says each in turn. It should be by two or at the most three and each in turn. Literally, it's, it's each one has a part. Each one has a share. Each one has their per appropriate part to fill in speaking. And when they're done speaking, it's someone else's turn. So the use should be limited because it's not necessary. The timing, each in turn, but look at the condition he places on it. That is, it's subject to the availability of an interpreter. At the end of verse 27, one must interpret. That is a command. Uh, we can't really do this in English, but this is a command, you know, first person is me, second person is you, third person is that guy, right? So this is a, a second person command. We would normally say, you do this. Well, this is a third person command. He does this, okay? So make sure he does this. What is it? There must be an interpreter. He must interpret. If he doesn't interpret, we have a problem, okay? This is a command that if the one who speaks in tongues is not able to interpret and have another interpreter with them to witness this, they cannot speak. We do know that it's possible that they would not have an interpreter. You remember back at the end of chapter 12 where Paul went through that list? All don't have gifts of healings, do they? Verse 30, all do not speak with tongues. All do not interpret. We don't all have every gift. There's a possibility that someone would not have the interpretation gift here, and therefore, look at it, it says, he must keep silent, another command. If he doesn't interpret, he must keep silent. That man, even though he has the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, he must keep silent in the church. This is the same idea as, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't mean silent like he can't talk. Maybe it just means he talks quietly. No, 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 no. This is the idea. Remember Luke chapter 18 where Jesus is passing by and the blind man is on the side of the road calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And it says they kept telling him to be quiet. That's the same idea. If there's not an interpreter for your, the language that you are speaking, nothing. You sit and you are silent. And it says he must be silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Uh, we talked about this some earlier in 14 and, and in chapter 12, but I don't think that there is any merit to a private prayer language of these, these ideas here, the charismatic idea of a private prayer language. That's not here. What is he saying? He's saying you can't use your gift in the corporate worship service because you don't have an interpreter. Keep it to yourself. The only people who are going to understand you is you and God, so keep that to yourself. Doesn't mean you go home and use your gift there. Why? Because the gift is not for you. The gift isn't for your personal edification. The gift is for the edification of the church. So use it when you can and when is the right context. So we saw the use of the speaking gift of the tongue speakers, the timing, the condition, but notice the purpose, and that's not directly in our passage. It's implied, but it's very clear back in chapter 14, verse 5. When Paul says, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Why? It's a good gift. It's a good spiritual gift that the Spirit has given us. But even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. What's the point of using prophecy? What's the point of using the gift of tongues? It's to edify the church. No matter what, whatever we're using, it's to be building up for the church. And so here, this tongue speaking, you have to follow these rules of order so that it would be helpful and understandable to the people of the church. 
Now he goes on. The second group that he addresses is the role of the prophets. The role of the prophets. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Notice, again, that their use is limited as well. But notice here that their use is necessary. You see, with the tongues, he says, if someone speaks in a tongue. But here he says, let. That's another third-person command. Someone must speak. The prophets must speak. Why? Because the primary element of the corporate worship service of the New Testament church is what? Is speaking the word of God to the people. Before the canon was done, that was the prophets. After the canon was finalized, now we have these pastor teachers who are explaining the word of God to us. And so he says, it's necessary that the prophets speak, that they they bring the word of God to bear on the people. But notice even then that it's still limited. He says, let two or three. You remember back at the end of uh, last section, verse 23, what happens when the whole church assembles and everyone uses their gift at the same time over top of each other? It's chaos. It's, it's you know, uh, they're going to think you're mad or they're going to think you're drunk like in Acts chapter 2. This is not a good thing. But rather, we come and we have order and we say, let two men or maybe three men come to speak to us. The timing, of course, the same as with the tongue speakers, it has to be in order. In this case, he says, one by one. Look, verse 30, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. So so it's interesting. Someone might stand up to speak a, a prophecy that the Lord had brought to them through their spiritual giftedness. They were standing up to speak to the congregation, and while they are speaking... Someone else says, the the Spirit has given me something to say here, and they have to be humble enough to conclude what they were saying and to hand off to the next man who would prophesy what the Lord had given him. For revelation is made to another who is seated. The first one must, what's that word again? Keep silent. (laughs) There's a condition here. You don't get to use your speaking gift when it's someone else's turn. You can all prophesy one by one. Notice that there's a condition here for the prophets as well. The condition for them is that they are subject to the evaluation of discerners. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. The the idea of passing judgment means to discern or to make a distinction. Or even in a negative sense, it means to to be critical of or to doubt what is being said. So again, this this is a command, let them, they must pass judgment. Someone must pass judgment or discern what the prophets are saying. Job 12.11 says, doesn't the ear test words like the palate test tastes food? Just like your, your tongue tells you what the food is like and if it's good or bad, your ear needs to listen and to discern the words that are coming into it. So the question is, who are these who are supposed to pass judgment? Well, <clears throat> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of opinions on this, okay? Who is passing judgment? Well, it says, let the others. So some commentators think, well, it's the other prophets. So one prophet stands up to speak. The other prophets in the room are the ones who pass judgment, if that's true or not. Maybe it's, it's those in the church who just have wisdom. First Corinthians chapter 6, we see the same word. Back when he says, is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide or to discern between his brethren? Remember talking about the, you're not allowed to have lawsuits outside the church. You need to be able to make decisions and, and resolve those things in the church. If we go to 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, it makes us think that the whole church is involved in passing judgment or discerning, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 22, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. 
hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Maybe, maybe the whole church is responsible to discern what's being taught. We see that in Acts chapter 17, right? The, the good Bereans, right? And the ones who, who were investigating the scriptures, they were more noble-minded. They received the word with great eagerness, but they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's true, we know, of course. But I think specifically here in, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul used a, a specific word for a specific reason. Because when he says pass judgment, the most recent time he's used that word is back in chapter 12, verse 10, when he says prophecy is one gift and to another the distinguishing of spirits. That's the same word here as pass judgment or to discern. I believe what he's talking about here is this gift of distinguishing of spirits is, you know, before the canon was complete and we could confirm what was being taught against the, the full canon of scripture, that there were people who had the spiritual gift. I told my class that they're human lie detectors. <laughs> Their job was to know whether the person speaking was speaking from God or was speaking by the power of evil forces. And so they would say, yes, that is a true prophecy, or no, that's not. And so we see that here, the distinguishing of spirits. And so I believe when it comes back to chapter 14, he says, let the others pass judgment. Someone needs to be there to say, yes, this is truly the word of the Lord. And so, as uh, again, like the tongue speakers, if there wasn't an interpreter, then they would not be able to speak. And in this case, either if it was someone else's turn, you weren't to speak, or if someone discerned and said, this is not the true word of the Lord, he must keep silent, right? The others must pass judgment on him. So what's the purpose of speaking for the prophets? Well, we see it in, in verses 31 to 33, giving instruction and exhortation. It's to instruct the church. Look in verse 31. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. All may learn, that is, they may gain the knowledge by your instruction, but they also may be exhorted or, or encouraged or helped along in their keeping of these things. But there's a second aspect to this, this exhortation and instruction because not only is it true that this is for the purpose of building up the church, but also doing this correctly, using your speaking gifts correctly according to the rules of order here, reflects the character of God, doesn't it? Look at verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Some people get, get really bent out of shape about verse 32. I think it's actually pretty simple. He's talking about how it, when it's someone else's turn to speak, you have to have the self-control to sit down and not speak. What is that? The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You must be self-controlled. The, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is self-control. You can control this. You can't stand up there and say, oh, I couldn't stop speaking. The Holy Spirit just took over. Nope. The spirits of the prophets, your spiritual giftedness are under your control and you need to use it appropriately. And so he says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. How do I know that? How do I know that the Holy Spirit doesn't generate chaos in the context of the local church? Because that's not who God is. That's not what God is like. God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. Warren Wearsby in his commentary says, when the Holy Spirit is in charge, the various ministers will have self-control, for that is one of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. And he says, our own self-control is one of the evidences that the Spirit is indeed at work in the meeting. One of the ministries of the Spirit is to bring order out of chaos. Confusion comes from Satan, not from God. When the Spirit is leading, the participants are able to minister one by one so that the total impact of God's message may be received by the church. A church that is out of control is not a spiritually minded 
church. A church that is orderly and careful is a church that's like God. For God is not a God of confusion. <laughs> that word confusion, it's, it's disorder or disturbance. Or it's even translated sometimes as an uprising or a riot. You all remember a few years ago when there was just chaos in our country, people rioting in the streets. God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of peace and harmony and order. One commentary said, if the prophets had no control over their spirits, any prospect of an orderly assembly would vanish. The expositor's commentary, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Orderly worship reflects the character of God. Order in the church. And he says, as in all the churches of the saints, he's reminding them, this isn't a rule I'm making up just for you because you're bad at this. <laughs> you are, but you need to listen, but... This is also for all the churches. These rules for the prophets, the tongue speakers, and even the women we're going to look at next, these are rules for all the churches. Verse, chapter 4, verse 17, he said, Just as I teach everywhere in every church, chapter 7, verse 17, I direct in all the churches. And here again, as in all the churches of the saints, God is never a God of chaos. God is never a God of disorder. He's a God of order and peace and harmony, and therefore you should be as well. So, before we move on, let's just think just for a minute about some application. What does this look like? Well, as you're reading through, you're saying, man, our, our services here at Countryside, they, they feel different than this, right? The, the Corinthian church service, it was, it was very communal. It was kind of, a, kind of a church service potluck, right? Everybody brought something to share. That's not how we do it here. Well, I think personally, by Paul's tone here in chapter 14 and the examples we have in Acts and, and in the other epistles, I think in some ways this is the bare minimum of the orderliness, okay? Even, uh, you know, Justin Martyr wrote a hundred years after 1 Corinthians was penned, a hundred years later, and he writes about what the order of service looked like for a church, and it looks way more like ours than it did like Corinth, okay? The idea is that God has given giftedness to uh, men in the church, women in the church, and they're to use it appropriately, and we know that, that the elders of the local church are to, to shepherd that church appropriately. And so at Countryside, the elders have chosen that the, the person who writes the order of service is a few members in our church who have a giftedness in that, and so through Pastor Tom and Seth and, and those who work with them. But here, look at these principles that we see. What is the principle that runs through these sections so far? It's a principle of humility. <laughs> It's a principle of saying, I want to see the church built up even if I don't get to be the one doing it, right? Look at this. Are you looking for a chance to be noticed or are you looking for a chance to serve others? Notice how limited they were. They were okay to defer to the next person to serve if that person was gifted in that way of serving. Notice how they shared the responsibility. Especially, think of a discussion context like we have at our church, like in home fellowships or even around the tables here. Are you the kind of person that needs to dominate the conversation, monopolize the conversation so that you get your word in, or are you the kind of person that defers to the others and asks good questions and listens to what others have to say? Notice how these things were evaluated by the people. So when you come and sit in a preaching context like this or, or under Pastor Tom, are you careful to, to evaluate that according to the truth of the scripture like we see in 1 Thessalonians 5? That's a good thing. You should be a Berean to concern yourself with whether what the preacher says is so. But on the other hand, are you coming to listen with the intent of learning and being instructed and encouraged to obey, or are you coming with the intention of being critical and saying, I'm going to find something wrong with what they say? 
It's good for us to, to examine what people say according to the word, just so, you're, just so we're clear. Like, I don't care what Pastor Tom thinks. You can tell him I said so. I don't care what Pastor Tom thinks. I care what the Bible thinks. And so when I go and sit under Pastor Tom, I, I do care what he thinks because he's my friend and pastor. But, but I care what the Bible says. And so when he stands up and says, this is what the Bible says, I'm under obligation to obey. Not because it's Tom, but because it's the word of God. So when we come and we evaluate it according to the scripture, are we coming to learn and obey God, or are we coming to be critical? Now, you'll notice there's also some differences between our services and theirs. Uh, we don't have tongue speakers in our services. We don't have prophets coming with new words of the Lord. No one's, no one's sitting there having a revelation in their chair while Pastor Tom is preaching, right? So what are we going to do about that? Well, I can say... Uh, that you know, these first two sections, the tongue speakers and the prophets, we don't have those normatively in the church anymore. The next section, uh, well, we do still have women in the church, okay? So what are we gonna do about that, right? And I just want you to, say, to know, for your encouragement, it comes up often in the elder meetings that we are thankful for the women in this church because we know two things to be true. One is that God has called the leadership of the church to be the responsibility of a plurality of qualified men. That's true. We also know that this church would fall apart in a hot minute if all you ladies disappeared real quick, okay? We are thankful that God has designed the body as he has designed it and that everyone can use their giftedness in a way that is good for the edification of the church. So the third section, the third group that he's going to talk to is the women. What is the women's role in using their speaking gifts in the context of the local church? So notice its use, verse 34 and 35 Women are not to use their speaking gifts in the context of the worship service. Verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. Verse 35, it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, I will tell you, unfortunately, there are lots of good, normally conservative commentaries that work very hard to make this passage say something that it clearly does not say. Usually they'll say something like, well, obviously what it's talking about is that the man, the husband stands up and he gives a prophecy and the woman must be one of those interpreter people and the, she disagrees with his prophecy, but she can't just say that in front of everybody. She needs to wait until they get home to tell him. I have a hard time thinking that that's what this says. <laughs> this says three times that the women are not to speak in church. What does that look like? What does that mean for the women to not speak in church? Well, a couple of observations. One, notice that there's no condition on this one. The first time with tongue speakers, you had to keep silent when? When there was no interpreter. The second time, you had to keep silent when? When another prophet came to speak. With the women, there's no condition here. It's not that the women can speak in church except when, it's that the women are not to speak in church. What does that look like? Well, notice the timing. We're, we're going to bring all this together. The timing here. They are to use their speaking gifts, and they are to speak when they are in private context. Notice it says, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. It's not, biblically, that women are not to raise their voice or, or speak a word when they come on the church campus. Okay? We know from all the rest of the scripture that all Christians, men and women, are to use their spiritual giftedness to serve the body in a lot of different ways. And you are to encourage one another and pray for one another and bear with one another and all those things. And that requires you to use your voice. That women are not to be the church mice, okay? But what does it mean? Well, I think the key here is in verse 34, the condition. Women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Why? But they are to subject themselves just as the law also says. 
The women are to subject themselves, to put themselves under the authority of or submit to what? It's very interesting that there's not an object in this sentence, okay? Now, in verse 35, it talks about women being subject to their own husbands. Let them ask their own husbands at home. We see that a lot throughout the scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, Titus chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3. We even saw it earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that women are to submit their authority under the authority of their husbands in the context of the home. But interestingly, it doesn't say in verse 34 that the women are to subject themselves to their husbands. It says they are to subject themselves. I think that's important because in 1 Peter 5, 5, it uses the same wording when it tells the younger men that they are to subject themselves to the elders in the context of the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think is the clearer passage on this context, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, writing about the context of the local church, says, verse 11 and 12, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but here's the key. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. You see, here, when it says the women are to subject themselves, it's not only to their husbands, because some of them might not have husbands, but it's that the women in the church are to subject themselves to the teaching, and therefore, by implication, the, the leadership, the elders of the church, and therefore are to submit to the teaching of those who are teaching and preaching, and not to be using their spiritual gifts, uh, speaking gifts, over top of them. So what, what does this mean? It means that women are not to use their spiritual speaking gifts in the context of the whole church assembled where they might, First Timothy 2, have to teach or exercise authority over men. That's what he's teaching here. And again, we can talk long and hard about this. This has nothing to do with women being less valuable or, or less knowledgeable or anything else like that. You go back to 1 Corinthians 11, as God is the head of Christ, so the man is the head of the woman. We see authority structures designed into God's creation, and that's a good thing. Just so you know, we are thankful for the women in this church and how knowledgeable you are biblically and how theologically astute you are. And we're also thankful that you submit yourselves to the leadership of the church and use your giftedness in appropriate context. What is that? Titus 2, women are to teach other women to love their husbands and love their children. That is a good and right thing to do. But 1 Timothy 2, the women are not to stand up in the gathered corporate worship service and to teach and exercise authority over men. Just as the law also says. What is this? It's referring all the way back to Genesis 3. Uh, when, when the curse comes because of Adam and Eve's sin, and, and he says, you, your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. There is always a conflict of authority in this world because we live in a sin-cursed world. And yet, the women are to subject themselves to the leadership of the church and not exercise their speaking gifts in public. So it might be that the women say, well, you know what? If I don't get to use my speaking gifts in the church, I'm not interested in church anyway. I don't want to come. This, is, this, isn't, this isn't for me. Apparently, this is for the men. And Paul says, you don't understand. The whole point of this is that you would receive instruction. Verse 35, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands. They need to learn. They need to, to be aware. This is a command. Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for women to speak in church. They can't use their speaking gifts in public corporate worship. But they should be there to learn. They should be there to receive instruction from both the teaching in the corporate worship service, but also from their husbands at home. Why? So that Titus 2, they have something to share with the other women and children. It's exactly right. So, ladies, are you eager to display, uh, you know, First Peter calls it a gentle and quiet spirit, someone who is humble and hard and submissive to the authorities in your life? 
Are you willing to listen and not to dominate the conversations that, that are around you? To submit your spiritual giftedness to the leadership of the church and to, to the benefit of the church? Are you eager to learn the truth of God's word in, in all kinds of different contexts? Coming to, to sit under the teaching of the word of God, to do Bible studies, to learn even at home from, from your families, your own husbands. And are you eager to use your speaking gifts in the appropriate context in the church where you can use those things well? Men, I'm not going to let you off the hook. Notice that it says if the women have a question, they should ask who? You. And you better know the answer. Matthew Henry, note, as it is the woman's duty to learn in subjection, it is the man's duty to keep up his superiority by being able to instruct her. If it be her duty to ask her husband, it is his concern and duty to endeavor at least to be able to answer her questions. If it be a shame for her to speak in church where she should be silent, it is a shame for him to be silent when he should speak and not be able to give an answer when she asks. Men, if you are a husband and a father, it is your job to know the word of God so that when questions come up in your house, you've got an answer. Or you say, I'm going to go find out, and you go find out real quick. And it might be you walking up to Pastor Tom after his sermon and saying, hey, I think I'm going to get some questions on the way home, and I need some clarification. And that's okay. And by the way, he's not going to be ashamed of you because he knows you're not omniscient, okay? But Warren Wearsby says, sad to say, in too many Christian homes, it is the wife who has to answer the questions because the husband is less taught in the word. Not okay, man. You are the spiritual leaders of your home, and you better be ready for those questions. So, the heart behind the rules of order, everything for edification. The explanation of the rules of order, notice what we talked there. Let's move on. Number three, the danger of rejecting the rules of order. Verse 36 was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? You see, the question in their mind is, well, what if we don't like these rules you're putting on us? So maybe we'll do something different. Maybe we don't need to go by the rules of order that Paul says. Paul says, are you the source of truth? The word of God came from you? You're the one who wrote it? Uh-oh, maybe you didn't write it. Maybe it just got really perfected when it came to you. It really arrived when you got it, right? Came to you only. Dangerous place to be. We see a progression here. Step one in verse 36. Notice someone who has become their own standard. <laughs> oh, you're the source of truth, huh? You're the one who gets to decide what it really means, huh? Can't do that. Rather... We come with a spirit of humility, submitting ourselves to the word of God, to the instruction to say, even if I don't think this sounds right, I'm, I'm going to submit myself to Christ and his word. I'm going to study it to know what it says. Step two, if you go on with that, someone who rejects God's word. Look, he says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet, thinks he's spiritual, if you think that you're wise, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And if anyone does not recognize this. He says, if you are as wise as you think you are, if you know as much as you think you do, you will know that what I'm saying is not just an opinion. This is from my apostolic authority as a messenger of Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord has said to you. But notice that he says, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Why? Going back to our illustration in the beginning, the Lord is the builder of the house. He gets to decide what order we do things in. Even if we say, I don't think that's right, we submit to what God says. 
the Lord says about his house, his church. One commentary said, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit will demonstrate compliance with the Lord's command. They are the true spiritual people who obey the leading of the Spirit. But what if they don't? What if someone in the church rejects these things? What if they have become their own standard and say, no, I think I know better, and they reject what the word says? He says, if anyone does not recognize this, he's not to be recognized. Matthew Henry said, those must be reproved and humbled whose spiritual pride and conceit throw Christian churches into confusion, though such men will hardly bear even the rebukes of an apostle. This is a dangerous place to be. And you can ask Brian and the elders, when someone has come to the point in their own mind where the word isn't right, where the elders aren't right, where only what they've decided to believe is correct, that is a dangerous place to be and a hard place to come back from. And usually it ends, like he says in verse 38, that you're not recognized. God rejects you because you have rejected his rightful authority. He is not recognized. He is ignored. What does that mean? Well, I think the, the practical thing is if you reject the, the truth of God's word, well, you're definitely not going to be recognized in the corporate worship. We're not letting you stand up and teach if you won't even obey the rules. But I think more importantly and more seriously, it means what Jesus said in Luke 10, 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. If you reject Jesus Christ's words in the scripture, you're rejecting God himself, and God rejects you in return. 1 John 4, 6, John says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. You know one of the clearest marks of a believing Christian, someone who is really going to heaven, is they listen and obey to what Jesus says. <laughs> the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Paul expected some opposition, but he warned that those who opposed him did so at their own peril. Anyone who ignores the Lord's commands would find himself ignored on the last day because his actions would show that he never knew the Lord. So for you and for me, it is imperative that we constantly evaluate our own heart and fight against the sin of pride, the insidious sin of pride that wells up in us so easily. Remind yourself that you are not the standard of truth. God is. God and his word is the standard of truth, not you and your own convictions about things. Remember that, that rejecting the authority of God's word in your life, that is a terrifying hint at your true spiritual condition. Because either one, God will need to discipline you as his child to get you out of that, or two, you are not his child to begin with. So we come to the last piece saw the heart behind the rules of order, the explanation of them, the danger of rejecting them, and now we come to the final piece, the application of the rules of order. Verse 39, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. You know, in some ways, these, these verses really wrap up our section here. But in a lot of ways, they wrap up all of chapter 14 and really all of going back to chapter 12 and even into some of chapter 11, talking about how do we use our spiritual giftedness in the context of the corporate worship of the church. And so we see here in verse 39, three applications. Excuse me. Three applications. 
First, desire the edification of the church. He says, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly or, or be zealous for, be jealous for prophecy, to prophesy. We saw this back in chapter 12, verse 31. We saw it again at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. And then why does he say, especially that you may prophesy? Why? Because prophecy is the gift in that context between that and tongue speaking that edified the church. So what are you supposed to desire? You're supposed to desire a certain spiritual gift, and if you can't have that, you don't want any of it? No. You're supposed to desire the greater gifts, the gifts that edify the church the most. And as we saw in chapter 12, we're not all eyes, we're not all ears, we don't all have the same giftedness, so what do we do? We desire the giftedness that God would give us to be the most beneficial to the church. Maybe that means that you just need to use your gift better. Maybe it means you need to find out if you have more giftedness in other areas than you thought. We have, a, a, for men in our church who have been in our church for a long time, have been through our discipleship program, we have a teaching practicum every now and then. You can come and, and try your hand at teaching a passage of scripture and you might do great, and we say, wow, we really want to help train you to do this more. You might do it and say, please don't ever make me do that again, and we say, okay. You might do it and we say, please don't ever do that again, and you say, okay. <laughs> but are you working hard to develop all of the spiritual giftedness that the Lord has given you so that you can most benefit the church? Desire the edification of the church. Number two, appreciate the gifts of the church. Notice that he says, after a whole chapter of ragging on the gift of tongues, he says, do not forbid to speak in tongues. Why? Because speaking in tongues was an appropriate gift that the Spirit had given for the use in that church. And so, don't forbid it. Don't, don't hinder or, or prevent someone from serving in this way. You remember in Luke chapter 9, when John and the apostles are talking to Jesus, and, and John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. He's not part of our group, and so we told him he can't do that. And what does Jesus say? Do not hinder him. Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. What do we do about people that have different spiritual giftedness than us? Or in this context, in Luke chapter 9, what do we do when someone can serve spiritually better than us? <laughs> we let them, and we're excited for them, and we allow people to use their giftedness in the service of the church for the building up of the body. Appreciate the gifts of the Spirit that God has given to the church, even and especially the ones that are different than the ones that you have. And then, last, verse 40, all things must be done properly and in order. Must be done properly or decently or respectably with dignity. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, you should behave properly toward outsiders. And he says, and all things should be done in an orderly manner. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews when he talks about the order of Melchizedek or the order of Aaron. Luke chapter 1, verse 8, remember Zechariah's according to the order of his division. Order means something structured, something that, that is ordered and, and uh, has a succession to it. All things should be done in an orderly manner. One commentary wraps up by saying, all things must be done for the strengthening or the edifying of the church, verse 26, and all things must be done in a fitting and orderly way, verse 40. The two commands complement one another. The church is edified only when everything is done in the right way and in an orderly fashion. I'm so thankful to be part of a healthy biblical church that embraces the truth of the scripture 
and says, we want to conduct our worship services in a way that is good for the church and is honoring to the Lord and for his glory. So, let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the teaching of your word this morning. We pray that it would be helpful for us as we consider how we can properly use our gifts in the context of the local church, how we can benefit and serve and edify one another such that all of us would be built up into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for all these things in your name. Amen.